The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for May 31st, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Hey Jim, how's it going? Going well. Yeah, I had a good holiday weekend. Oh, right. Trying to stay cool over there? Yeah, well, it is getting pretty warm out here. Yeah. But, uh, okay. And uh, thanks for being on the show with us again today. And also on the couch here, we have uh, Matt Kaiser. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Good. And uh, staring blankly off into space, <laughs> we have Manny Ortiz. How's it going, Manny? Not bad. Good. Good to see you again. Um, so let's jump into the first story. And I think this is one that you were looking at, Matt. Um, another nation state actor kind of thing going on. Uh, it's called Stealth Falcon. What's the scoop on this yeah, one? Yeah, so this is a write-up by Citizen Lab, who, in my opinion, does really good, really technical and complete write-ups. Mm -hmm. uh, they're attributing this one with sort of circumstantial evidence to the government of the UAE. Whether or not that's true is not really the most important part for me. For me, it's the technical analysis they've done, which is outstanding. Okay. Um, so what they've got is there's a campaign being waged against certain supporters of a certain political viewpoint, um, and the, the attackers have created fake Twitter pages, uh, users, uh, a fake uh, NGO, non-governmental organization, and this is the one that really I think is kind of neat, is a fake URL shortener, which they've made public. Oh, really? So, so they created this URL, URL shortener. Because apparently there's code out there you can create your own URL shortener, basically. You own the domain, you have the software running, and it just sets up short URLs right, as, right. as you give it to them. Um, and one of the Twitter accounts is sending out these short URL links to targets, and the targets are clicking them. Now, the interesting thing is that the URLs that are created by the attackers look just the same to like short URLs as the ones that anybody else can create, but they behave slightly differently. If I were to create a short URL on this site, it would point me directly to that site, bang, I'm there. Mm -hmm. With one of these, it loads a secondary page in the middle saying, you are being redirected to X page, please wait. And while it's waiting, it's doing fingerprinting on the site. It's using JavaScript and okay. possibly some other technology, but it's, it's taking a look and saying, what is your browser? Are you using the Tor browser? What antivirus are you using? Getting an idea of what's installed on that machine, uh, which is you know, invasive, but you know, if you're trying to figure out that, yes, the visitor is who they think they are and sort of prep yourself for a future attack, be a great way to get information about their machine. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Citizen Lab did something that I've seen done with other URL shorteners, which is kind of cool, is they were given samples of the short URLs. And, you know, URL shorteners are usually short domains slash a couple of letters. They figured out you could enumerate the possible short URLs that are possible for that space and right. just figured out which ones were active and figured out where they were pointing and the different types of themes that were related to the short URLs that existed. Uh, so they made a map and said, these are the ones, these are the topics, these are the probable targets and then also mapped out based on the, the, um, the Twitter users that they found, who were the actual targets and what were their interests. So there's a very, very comprehensive write-up of that. It's pretty good investigative work. Um, so I would recommend anybody go see that. If you want to get really into tools, techniques, and procedures of an attacker group, this is right, a great right. write-up. Yeah, yeah, the, whole, the, the TTP angle there, I think, is the important part. Um, so if I'm like a regular user and I happen to stumble across this uh, URL shortener service, I could have registered my own? Absolutely. And like I said before, you, if you're just a regular old user off the internet, your shortened URLs 
don't have that go between not the weaponized or not whatever weaponized. right yeah so that, that that gives it you know if anybody else was like can you go investigate this be very hard pressed yeah, to find stealthy. evidence yeah interesting that's a very interesting technique yeah i don't think i've seen that before but i've, I've seen the enumeration of url shorteners in some analyses before so that's mm -hmm. Uh, interesting technique. And certainly uh, this type of activity is not unusual by certain governments that want to uh, keep track of human rights interests. We know that there's other countries that do this as well. So yep. um, probably an interesting thing to take a look at from a TTP standpoint and understand that better, uh, just so that you're aware in a, as a defender uh, what to look for uh, when you and recognize it when you see it. Uh, so the next uh, story up is one that you were looking at, Jim, and uh, it has to do with something that we see a lot of, uh, office documents with macros in them, but there's a little twist on this one, it sounds like. Yeah, this was kind of interesting. It was a write-up uh, last week from Bromium Labs uh, that they had discovered some office documents uh, that in the VB script uh, in there, they checked to determine if they were running inside a VM or not. Now we've seen malware in the past that is, you know, is VM aware that checks to see if it's running in a virtual machine, and if it is, then it doesn't do its malicious activity. But this one was odd in that I, I'd never seen that happen in in a document in macros in a document before. Um, this was kind of interesting. They yeah, they run a number of the standard checks, um, looking for strings related to you know virtual machine type architectures. Uh, they run. Uh, they check to see what other processes are running on the system, and if you're running, you know, Process Explorer, Procmon, Snort, Wireshark, then they then they won't do their malicious activity, which is to go out and download their malicious payload, their, their secondary uh, payload with their malware. Um, and yeah, it, like I said, this is kind of strange. We've seen it before in, in malware, but I had never seen it before in, in office documents. And we were talking before we went on the air about why, why they might be doing it. And I think, um, I think it's possible one of the reasons they're doing it in in the in the macros in the office document is to get past uh, folks who scan uh, documents uh, as they're coming into the infrastructure to get past some of the preliminary uh, antivirus scanning types of things that get done done there. So yeah, it was interesting. First time I had ever seen this. Uh, apparently, first time that uh, the guys at Bromium Labs had seen it too. So I, I thought it was a really interesting new new method by the bad guys. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, unless you've been living under a rock for the past few years, malicious office documents is probably, if not the number one way, very close to the number one way that attackers are doing spear, or even just regular phishing attacks. We see lots of 
uh, large phishing campaigns that have Word documents with macros in them. And then when you open it, it says, hey, in order to see the content of this document, you need to enable macros. And they even sometimes give you a little arrow pointing. You know, so if you're, if you're not aware of that and you're watching the show, please be aware of that now. Don't enable macros in documents, certainly ones that you receive from somebody randomly on the internet. Uh, even, even when it is somebody that you trust, you might want to call them up and ask and make sure that they realize there's macros in this document and whether that was intentional or not. Um, but a uh, good point in that I don't think I've seen this before either, where they've actually pushed the VMware detection up into the uh, the first layer here, really. This is what I would consider like stage zero, right? You get this malicious Word document, and usually all that does is it goes and executes, or it goes to fetch a piece of malware and drop it on the machine. So it's really a dropper kind of thing, usually that uh, that Word document with the macro in it. Uh, so now they're even shortcutting that, and I think you're probably right that they're trying to evade any of these email spam gateways that are maybe doing a little bit more rigorous analysis of the attachments that are in email. And if they don't see anything dropped, they might think it's okay and let it through to the actual user. But in reality, um, it would really do something on a real machine. Yeah, so the way to get around this is read all of your email only on VMs. <laughs> right. <laughs> or run a rogue process called Wireshark.exe. Yeah. on your machine that doesn't really, you know, you could run a very lightweight, do nothing process that does that kind of thing. And actually, I think we were talking before the show too, um, there was some version of ransomware, I can't remember if it was Locky or one of them, where they actually had an inoculation that did a some similar technique where they tried to set things in the registry so that when the malware got there, it would think it was already on the system and it wouldn't run. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to set things up and that's, I mean, it's another tactic you could do. I actually wouldn't recommend that tactic. I don't think that's gonna work <laughs> as a long-term strategy. Um, but it's an interesting kind of method that some people have tried to use. So, um, but really I think, you know, we know a lot of uh, defenders use virtual machines of one form or the other as a means to analyze malicious documents, executables and whatnot. Um, most savvier analysis people have already figured out how to prevent, make it machine look like it's not a virtual machine, mm -hmm. get around all of these little tests. Um, but uh, you know, some people are just doing it on a low, low budget, might not have done all that uh, if they're doing a manual kind of setup on their own. Yeah, well, and there are more sophisticated tests that they, they could have done. But you know, a, a few years ago, I thought that that the malware looking to see if it was running on a VM would actually stop. We, we wouldn't see as much of it because you know we're seeing more and more virtualized systems with cloud computing mm -hmm. and with you know host virtual desktop and that kind of thing. I expected to see less of this. We haven't really seen as much of a decrease in the malware that looks for you know to see whether it's running in a VM. I haven't seen the decrease that I expected to see. So I guess I was wrong in that one. Maybe maybe we will see that decrease eventually, but you know, I, I thought the malware authors were shooting themselves in the foot by by continuing to do that with more and more computing being done in virtual environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll see. You're right. I mean, there there's a definite move to 
virtual desktops, even a lot of point of sale systems. We know there's a lot of point of sale malware that runs in virtual spaces a lot of times as well. So um, uh, we'll see. It, I guess it depends on who your target audience is for your malware, right? If you know your audience well, then you might want to custom tailor it. And it looks like whoever's doing this maybe knows that this is a good tactic to take. So I still, I still like your recommendation, though. Just run a free copy of Wireshark on your machine and. All the time. At all times. Right. All times. <laughs> At all times. Process right? monitor. Right. And process explorer. I mean, yeah. It seems an easy way. There's a lot easy. of free tools you can just <laughs> run in your automatic startup. Yeah. That just run in yeah. the background. You might, you might prevent learn malware from. Yeah. Uh, you might stop a few things, but it's not gonna. That's not really gonna work very well. <laughs> as much as we joke about it. Um, all right. So uh, next story is one that you're looking at, Manny, and I guess there's some zero days for sale. Yeah, like <laughs> any other day that they're for sale, right? Um, you know, uh, on the uh, on the dark webs, um, as they say. Um, but that's where um, Matt likes to hang out. Is that, that's oh, that's where <laughs> Matt hangs out. <laughs> uh, but you know, this th this one has come to light because such a high price tag has been put on it, right? So um, so this is a a um, uh, this was found on a Russian language cyber crime uh, forum, and. Uh, uh, it was put up for sale for $90,000. It's, it's basically a Windows bug um, that is of the type uh, LPE, which is the local privilege escalation. So okay. it allows you to basically es escalate right. your so privileges. So once you've got onto the machine as right. like a regular yep. user, you yep. need a, usually a local privilege escalation to get up to admin exactly. level. So it's, okay. it's usually used as, a, as sort of a in conjunction with other things. Right. You know, so you get onto the box once you've you've used your initial vulnerability to get you on the box, a lot of times those types of, that, that type of compromise gets you access to the currently logged on user. Then your next step is obviously to escalate, right? That's, right. That, gets you, that gets you even further into the box. So obviously high value goes to these types of, uh, right. of bugs. So um, this particular one that you know, has this high price tag supposedly is valid on all versions of Windows. Okay. From from 2000 all the way up to literally it says here the latest patch on Windows 10, which was, you know, interesting. Um, although it, it hasn't been completely and utterly verified yet um, because, you know, I don't know who's got the money to go <laughs> actually test one of these things out. But anyway, you know, um, so the, the, basically the article goes through and it starts talking about, you know, the, the uses of, of LPEs and, you know, why this is, why this is so valuable. Um, and, uh, and, and basically the, the, the actual seller in this case, which he calls himself Buggy Corp, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, and he, the, the article itself actually, I guess to prove out, he actually has a video there where he's showing the use of this bug to prove out one of the right, methods that, it that it was used to, to okay. prove out that he actually does have this code and it actually does work. So the, the video actually shows it on a on a on a on a machine running uh, EMET, which is the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit, mm -hmm. um, which is some sort of software framework that I guess is supposed to be used. Well, it's for, like an add-on for Windows. It's supposed to prevent malicious code from executing. Yeah, it has a couple other features, and I can never remember what's in the event and what's not, but things like 
Is that an ASLR standard now? Yeah, part of I don't remember, I don't remember. You, but I think that was. But there's in another there at one, one too point. that's yeah. escaping me. It's got a right. bunch of things that it does. Right. So, <laughs> so proving his vulnerability out on a machine that's 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 actually running this is that it's that just that next level up. Like, hey, right. Even you know, if somebody's is, running Emet on their well, machine, which is not standard, it's like an extra layer of security. It's supposed you can to be bypass right. yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So either he's got the bug, or he's got a really good video editor. Exactly. So I mean, that, <laughs> exactly. that's the thing. Until someone has seen the code, this right. is like you know, it could be a show. It could be yeah. some guy with some real good uh, YouTube yeah. chops. Yep. Yeah. So again, it hasn't it hasn't been proved out yet. So we, no one knows exactly whether or not it's true or not. But he does have this video, and then uh, it goes in. It goes on to say talk about the way that the forum itself. So this Russian forum. Um, uses sort of a, I guess I would relate it to sort of an eBay reputation based. Okay. So it allows you to basically create a reputation okay. that says, and oh, they use an escrow service. Okay. So, so they, if you were the buyer, if you were the buyer, you would say, hey, look, I, you know, I'm interested in buying it. I'm, I'll send the whatever the ninety thousand dollars to the escrow service. You send me the code as soon as you say the code is good. I release the money. Obviously, I keep a little change for myself, and the and then service right the escrow service does, it, yeah. and then and then the person gets their their money for the for the uh, vulnerability. So, um, so this particular user used this escrow service, which is another also what they're saying is proving that this may actually in fact be legitimate. Add some legitimacy to yeah. it. He's not exactly. just trying to like yep. say, hey, send me some money and through whatever PayPal or something. And exactly. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Exactly. He's not trying to do a direct. <laughs> transaction yeah yeah so um, they they also talk about um, that Microsoft obviously we all I think we all know and we probably talked about it Microsoft has their own bug bounty um, program mm -hmm. and their bug bounty program there was there was actually uh, somebody from Microsoft that that chimed in um, and uh, they had said you know hey yeah we you know usually this these types of things we like to come through our bug bounty and in particular this kind of vulnerability presented to us would probably pay out somewhere between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars. So as the writer of the vulnerability, going either going to sell it on the dark web or selling it directly to Microsoft almost mm. unless he could sell it twice. Exactly. Yeah, well three yeah. <laughs> <laughs> three different people, yeah. right? I don't know. But, but wait, if he goes to Microsoft he'll get a shirt too. Oh uh, uh, gotta, you gotta to think ahead. Shirt. Yeah, I'm gonna go to Cafe Press and make my own Microsoft shirt. Got it. And that was actually one of the key points was that there is quite a bit of variation between like how much certain people would pay for it. So, you know, in the market, what what is something like this actually worth? Yeah, I haven't gone shopping for zero day bugs lately, so I don't really know what the average price is. Whether it sounds like ninety thousand from our discussion here might be a little on the high side. Well, I mean, you got to factor Possibly. in the fact that it apparently works on all Windows versions. That is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that Microsoft in their bug bounty program is willing to pay out a hundred k for a you know a full bypass of Emet makes that pretty significant. If in fact he really is able to bypass it. Right. Right. Uh, well, interesting story. And for those unfamiliar with the underground marketplace and these kinds of things, probably something that a lot of people don't know about. I'm not well versed on it myself, but I know that these kind kinds of things are transacted on a regular basis. Um, 
you know, in the underground space. So uh, interesting thing to keep an eye on. Oh, and no. we know there's a lot of nation states and other crime war actors that they like to collect these things. Uh, then when they have their new campaign, you know, they can easily make that $90,000 back, uh, mm. especially a crime war campaign <laughs> um, in pretty short order, probably. Yep. Uh, so as long as they're very organized and a lot of these groups are organized, if you know what I mean. So um, we also learned that uh, Matt hangs out in the dark webs. Yeah, I was so just I'm surprised around. I don't know this already. <laughs> I should be much more up on this. You should. You should. Absolutely. Um, I just assume that you know everything that's going on on the internet. <laughs> You're my window into the uh, darker side of the internet. <laughs> uh, so uh, with that, let's move on to the next story. Speaking of uh, uh, working in the dark shadows of the internet to exfiltrate data, it sounds like somebody has uh, a new technique that hadn't been thought of before. Well, yeah, this is a pretty, uh, maybe at least a, a really cool spin on an old technique. So this is a talk that was given at Hack in the Box Amsterdam. Uh, a company called Safe Breach, two of their researchers presented on, the title of the talk was something around perfect exfiltration of data. And, and whenever somebody says perfect in, in information security, my ears perk up and I go, right, this can't, yeah. this can't be right. <laughs> but it's really cool. So they, they sort of posited the idea of if you had to exfiltrate data in a system that was being completely observed, and it had to look normal, and I couldn't use any systems that were typical for like getting rid of, you know, sharing out data like email or things like that. They very limited them, so they, they, they came up with like 10 commandments of how to do this right, and these right. are the rules they imposed on themselves and said, now what can we do with it? Um, so things like complete visibility of the traffic, no, you know, if there's SSL involved and it's terminated at the edge and whoever's the defender gets to see all of it. Um, time synchronization between the communicating parties, which turns out to be very important. Um, and no direct communication, which means if A wants to talk to B, they have to talk through C, this third okay. party, which gets rid of a lot of things that if you want to use like IP headers and stuff stuff in there, uh, you can't do it anymore right. because you can't really be modifying the traffic because somebody, a third party in between has got to deal with it. Right. If it's going to have some weirdness. Okay. So they come up with some pretty cool ideas. Um, um, <laughs> I feel like they're a little more academic than most. For me, this would be, you know, if you're serious about getting data out, it absolutely positively cannot be detected, and you're willing to wait forever, these are the kinds of attacks you want to use, but these are the sorts of things where a bit at a time is being transferred. Okay. These are like, you know, when you talk about covert channels, like this is, to me, this feels very academic, like stuff I learned in school where it's like, it's totally possible to do this, and you're like, well, who's going to wait around for several months to get their PDF document out of the, <laughs> out right, of the right. But anyway, so they, they talked about using web counters. So like you go to a website and it ticks up and says, you have had X visitors and now you're there and it's X plus one. If you establish a time, like a, a series of moments at which you're supposed to check. So A visits the website. And this again, take this, take this website, this theoretical website, assume that nobody else is going to it. Or at, least it's or at least that page up at that, that website. one URL, right. right. And A hits the page. All they do is they load the page. And then B, at a specific time, checks that same page and says, oh, OK, since the last time I visited, either the counter has gone up or it hasn't gone up. And one of those is 1, and one of those is 0. And that's your bit. And you do that over and over so and eight, over. Eight attempts there will get you a bite. Yes, or non-attempts. Or non-attempts. On yeah. schedule, right, yeah, if nothing's you're happening. Still, go, you're okay. still going to have to check, right? Yes. To get a zero or a one. And you're not going to have to account for the other guy checking it too. But still, yes, this is your slow, slow yeah, way of getting slow. it. slow. Yeah, I mean, you can try and accelerate the schedule, but I think we talked before the show, like any sorts of repeated requests like this is going to start to look like right. beaconing. And yeah. if you're doing something behavioral, 
you'll probably start saying, why is this guy hitting this, this web page that has nothing but a counter on it? Or it, it could be anything, you know, it could be right. some other arbitrary web page you've picked, but why, why do they keep requesting it? Yeah. So it starts to get more suspicious the more times you hit the page. Um, account login time is an interesting one. Like if you log into a service like uh, Yahoo or Gmail and it says, the last time you logged in was, you know, five o'clock on Tuesday, mm -hmm. and then you log out. And they check it and they say, has somebody checked in, in the last time period? Okay, it hasn't changed, that's a one or a zero. Same kind of idea. So we're right, building right. it one bit at a time. Uh, HTTP server caching was an interesting one to see if the page needs to be, was, was cached or not. Um, the one I thought was probably the least likely to get detected is online friend statuses. So if I'm logged into like Skype or right. Facebook chat and Bob is online, Bob is online at time A, he's not online at time B, that's, that's two more right, bits. Right, right. So you, in that you can probably do, as long as that chat session is allowed, you know, if you're, you're not blocking Facebook, then this, this could just be somebody with a flaky internet connection coming on and offline, but you're sending one bit at a time. So these are all, you know, they're kind of cool. I don't know how practical they are. Right, but right. Yeah, the practicality of it seems, uh, seems a little weak, uh, but I guess it would work. However, you know, most security defenders like ourselves, if we're watching somebody or a machine, like we have algorithms that run and look, and if I see a machine that is beaconing to a single location, semi, you know, very often, then that's going to actually raise an alarm mm -hmm. uh, yep. in our systems. So they would have to do, like, if they're doing a bite a day, then maybe then I won't notice it. But if you do more than that. But that's the thing. Like, I think that last one, those friend requests, is probably the least likely to get noticed by a defender. Because if you've got a service and the way that it works is it has to call the server every so often. Right. And any, anybody so those would be this, the only ones where you could really hide pretty, e well, more easily, right? But, or a yeah. weather type thing, I think I was yep, you uh, did proposing. You know, there's ticker. a lot of those weather things or stock ticker. Should we be maybe. giving this away? Should we be giving away? free advice like this? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's free advice, but we're just kind of talking around the theoreticals of it. Right. You know, while we're talking about this topic, and we haven't, we didn't cover these stories, but um, this type of covert channel stuff is actually coming into play more. So I know in the um, past few weeks, uh, we've seen uh, DNS used as a method yeah, of exfiltration. Yeah. So they'll make queries. And that's not completely new, but we're seeing nation-state actors and crimeware actors both use this technique where they're um, actually exfiltrating data four bytes at a time uh, as part of the DNS query. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what the, the nation-state one. And then the crimeware one, I don't remember exactly how that one works. But they're basically, they don't communicate directly to the machine at all. They talk to a DNS server and that's their DNS server. You know, If I'm in a company, I'm gonna talk to my DNS server who's gonna probably talk to some other DNS server who's going to ultimately talk to the real DNS server and mm -hmm. get some TXT record back or something. So there's a very discreet way of doing it. Not invisible. You could definitely, if you know what you're looking for, it's very easy to find that activity. But unless you've been looking at DNS activity as part of your security analysis, mm -hmm. you might not pick it up. So uh, I think that's an important thing to let people know about as well, that it's not always the methods you expect especially if it's an advanced actor, they might try to find very clever ways to get data out. And I think some of these ones, at least I get four bytes at a time with the DNS one. That's um, and they have some tools that you know, will do it, but still that will create a lot of chatter, right? If I want to transfer a 400 byte uh, message, that's 100 DNS requests that I got to do. 
really quickly. So that's going to hopefully trigger some kind of uh, awareness in a security apparatus. So anyway, uh, interesting story. I think these are all like this one's it's pretty a lot of these are theoretical. Some of the ones I mentioned are actually in use, but they're use in very discrete segments. It's not like a mass type of malware infection. So um, I don't know that a lot of people have seen them yet, but it's one uh, something to keep an eye on. Um, if you just Google around, I think you probably find some of the recent stories about that. Mm -hmm. Some of the I don't remember exactly who put out each of those articles, but anyway. So internet weather. We actually have something very interesting that happened in internet weather. We have reached an unprecedented level. I don't think I've ever seen it this high uh, ever in my career here of uh, scanning activity on 23 TCP. And when I talk about ever, I'm talking about in terms of scanning on a single source uh, before. So we went from kind of, you know, we've been talking about 23 TCP as a scan source for years now. And I'm actually going to show you a two year chart. What's that? Scan source? Well, I mean, scan sources, whatever. Right. But as a, uh, as a, des uh, a port that they're scanning on. So um, we've gone from kind of a normal average baseline of let's just kind of rough eyeball it at like 60 to 80, maybe 70,000 scan sips per uh, hour up to 260,000. And this just really happened over the past weekend, really. So somebody over Memorial Day weekend here uh, built out their botnet quite a bit. Um, and this is more dramatic when we go to the two-year chart. So this is a 30-day chart of this. When you uh, look at the number of scan flows, you can see this actually kind of jumped up by about five to six times of the normal amount. So if we jump to the two-year chart here, so this is the two-year chart of activity. So we're going to expand, you know, look at it in a longer-term time span. We've been looking at this activity for a very long time, and you can see I put red bars up here so that you could see um, you could see all of this activity uh, over the past two years. But because uh, it's kind of hard now that it's uh, just a small sliver up here once we squeeze it all together. But we've really gone from something that even back here in the 2014 time frame, this was probably still the number one scan source on the internet. Like in terms of the most scanned port, this was it in terms of number of sources and the amount of activity. And now we've reached a really unprecedented level. So it would be very interesting to see if this continues. Um, I hope it doesn't. This was pretty significant. Um, I don't even know if I could explain how significant this amount of activity <laughs> is. It's a lot. This is a lot of scanning activity. Um, especially when you're looking at the five to six times as many scan probes on the port that was already the number one scan uh, scanned port, it was probably taking up like 30 to 40% of those pie charts ones that we would Some do. Some days we saw like 47 to 50% even. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty, this is really significant. So uh, definitely one we're going to want to keep an eye on throughout the week here. Um, and we'll, we'll give you an update next week, but uh, it's, it's quite a bit. So uh, one of the other ones we've been talking about a lot lately is the 53413 uh, UDP Netis router, uh, which we see a lot of activity on. And I think Brian had mentioned this last week that we're still seeing a decent volume of scan sources, even last week uh, over the last few months, but they haven't really been very active. You just kind of see this scraggly looking amount of scanning activity down at the bottom. So the top chart is the number of sources scanning. 
And then the bottom one is how much uh, scan probe activity they're generating, those sources. So you can see that we have a lot of sources here, but they're not really doing as much um, scanning activity as they had been when you look back here before, where it was pretty much the amount of scan sources kind of trended about the same as the scan uh, probe activity. And it kind of had the same profile, whereas it kind of changed shape here a little bit for a month or so, maybe a month and a half. And uh, within the past few weeks, uh, we have noticed a pretty swift upturn in the amount of activity here. So uh, in terms of the actual scan probes, you can see that this arrow is trending uh, very, you know, very steeply up where the amount of scan sources is not really trending up as much. So we have kind of the same number of scan sources, maybe a few more than we used to, a few thousand more, uh, but they're being more aggressive than they had been. So somebody's giving them instructions to do a lot more than they had been. Uh, so that's, I mean, we know this is botnet related activity. This is one of those ones that it's really, it's very trivial. You just send a UDP packet out to the internet with a message in it that says, go download this file and execute it. And if the machine's a Netis router or the appliance is a Netis router receives it and he's got this vulnerability, he'll say, okay, and he'll go do it. And now he's a member of your botnet. So, um, uh, so it looks like somebody's trying to build that out a little bit more. And maybe they had a period of time here over the past couple of months where they weren't really utilizing it very well or giving it instructions to do additional scanning. Uh, so the 4028 TCP is another one we've talked about. DT server, and I forget what the DT, um, it's not DHT, it's something else, but it's not really what the official name is for it here. Uh, we've talked about this before. I've never really dug into it completely. Probably still need to do that. It's just a matter of getting the time to go really analyze these. We have looked at some of these devices engaged in the scanning. A lot of home routers, a lot of these embedded Linux devices, network attached storage, uh, devices and um, uh, the patterns definitely this kind of sawtooth decay is classic botnet looking activity if you see that then you know there's probably a botnet in play where they've issued instruction to start to all the bots to start scanning the fast ones finish quicker the slower ones finish slower and you kind of get that decay like that um, but it's still in play my best guess you know I did a little research into the IDRA um, malware family and back in 2014 when this was getting installed a lot more and still is today uh, they would as part of its installation it would open a backdoor I guess remote command shell on port 4028 that people get hit so it's very plausible that that's what somebody's looking for maybe somebody's looking for any of these ones that have already been owned by somebody else trying to take them over for themselves I don't know uh, I'm theorizing here but uh, it's a plausible theory. So, but I haven't really actually ever observed that myself um, on any of these uh, compromised devices. So uh, anyway, uh, it's an interesting one to keep an eye out. It would be nice to get a better understanding around exactly what's happening there. And then this is kind of showing the distribution. Um, I didn't actually tally up exactly uh, who's involved here, but Brazil for sure. Well, South America in general seems to have a lot more of these devices. The U.S. is very light. There's not that many scan sources involved from the U.S. Um, I forget where this is. Anybody remember what country this is here? I can't really see Somewhere the in the Asia-Pac, South Pacific region, it looks like. Um, Indonesia. Is it Indonesia? That's possible. Thanks, Jim. 
Um, and then somewhere in the Middle East here has a big chunk of them. And I want to almost say it's Iran, but I'm not positive because I think we had looked at this once before. And I think Iran popped up. And then there's um, a bunch in Europe here scattered throughout. So when I had done some analysis before, there definitely were segments of embedded devices that fan like uh, families, vendors that were showing up more than others. Um, and uh, it's possible that whoever's doing this is looking for certain vendors of devices and compromising those more than other ones. Uh, so it's interesting that there aren't that many in the US uh, involved in this activity. Uh, another one that we hadn't talked about, but we've seen some recent activity scanning on it in the past week or so here, is uh, Postgres. So Postgres is a database. It's really popular. It's not as popular as some people uh, think of as MySQL and um, MSQL. Uh, MSQL and Oracle. But Postgres is another very popular um, uh, database engine that's available on most Linux platforms. And uh, somebody has been aggressively scanning for it. And it is really somebody. So it is a single scan source that is very aggressively scanning uh, for servers that are running Postgres. And that's the common port that the default one, 5432 TCP, that Postgres listens on. And um, it's also coming from a US web hosting provider that has a notably bad reputation. I'm not going to mention who they are. However, most of us that work in security are familiar with the bad reputation of this ISP. So uh, that's not surprising. It's probably an owned box or somebody, and somebody's using it to do this scanning activity. So something to keep in mind, if you have Postgres and it's exposed to the internet, first of all, I'd say, why are you doing that? And I would say definitely try to minimize who can talk to that to only the people that should. So then the last chart I have here uh, for the internet weather is zero access botnet. So last week, uh, Jim went over some of the recent malware trends, I want to say, for, was it like for first quarter of 2016 or It something? was for the month of April. It was at oh. a checkpoint from the oh. month of April. Right. And I think they had observed that zero access was still in the top three there, which I was kind of surprised about. Um, but maybe I don't know as much as I know about zero access anymore. But I pulled the chart for what we see. And this is a five-year chart, so it's a pretty long one. It shows you the from inception back in uh, the 2012 timeframe here, uh, all the way to the death or the, the very rapid decline uh, to minimal amounts that we see today. Uh, now this is based on zero, zero access is a click fraud and Bitcoin mining uh, piece of malware. It uses peer-to-peer -peer for its communication control. That peer-to-peer -peer is on these four UDP ports, which is what these four rivers of color look like here. Uh, for those four, four ports. And what they do is they just beacon out to the internet trying to say, hey, is anybody out there that's also one of these zero access bots? And if he finds somebody that is, they start talking to each other and exchange information. Um, back in the 2012 timeframe, some of the industry analysts were estimating there's about 2.2 million of these out there. Um, in our charts here, our peak is about 50,000 unique scan tips per hour. Of course, we don't have a complete visibility of the internet. We also do our aggregation based on hour as opposed to a day, because uh, it gives you a little bit more fine granularity when you do it by hour. So in reality, it probably is many, like what we probably saw at AT&T's internet backbone space is probably in the hundreds of thousands uh, or more per hour uh, per day when you actually aggregate the unique SIPs. But 
Um, I can only give you the, the per hour. So we're about, our peak was about 50,000. That's the top of this yellow line uh, back in the 2013 timeframe. But now, and it's barely even registrable on this chart here, it's about 500 unique SIPs per hour, which is pretty low. Mm -hmm. So um, it's very possible. I also, I marked on here that in December 2013, Microsoft did do a takedown effort, which was a little, um, there was some skepticism on how successful that was <clears throat> because they didn't get all the command and control uh, servers, plus the peer-to-peer -peer aspects of it let the bots that were already infected and not getting AV updates exist, um, continue to exist. However, I would argue that at least for these variants that use this peer-to-peer -peer protocol, it seems that over time here, it was fairly successful in lowering this down quite a bit. Now, if zero access has changed, which I'm not aware of, and they're using some different means for command and control, which is possible, and that's why that other article had mentioned um, them still being quite a few out there, uh, that would be interesting. No, I'd like to see if I could find, get an updated chart to that regard. But uh, I thought it was interesting to take a look anyway to see how it's been doing, because we had been looking at this over the past many years, uh, especially back when it was in its heyday here, back in the 2013 timeframe, we were keeping a close eye on it. So, uh, and even back when it was in its heyday doing click fraud, I think they're estimating that, this is an estimate, that the amount of revenue it was generating this botnet from click fraud operations was about $100,000 a day, which is quite a bit. <laughs> so if I'm running a criminal enterprise here with these bots and I'm able to defraud you know, a lot of these advertisement things that are paying me to get clicks on their pages, um, they were estimating about 100000 Now, whether that was a real number, I don't know, but uh, that's some of the re uh, reports I was reading when I was kind of researching this again this morning. So. Um, anyway, I thought it was an interesting view. So, that's the show for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, YouTube, and iTunes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Our handle has changed recently. We're now at ATT Business on Twitter. So you can follow us there. Actually, all of the AT&T stuff, I think, is going out through, well, not all of it, but at least for the business and security offering stuff that we talk about is through that Twitter handle. So uh, update your bookmarks and make sure you follow us over there. Uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Matt. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Manny. Uh, I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.